no surprise. I mean, we talk a bit about, you know, being a very lean and, well, profitable organization, always very focused on, on costs. So we don't have, um, you know, huge marketing budget. And that's kind of something that's been in the DNA from the beginning. I think you have to think about the, the activities that will be most impactful for you. So we've tried lots of different things over the years. And then we test and measure and see what has the biggest impact, depending on what the desired outcome is. Hello, and welcome to the FinTech Marketing Podcast, bringing you insights and ideas from the world's leading financial service marketers. I'm your host, Eric Fulweiler, CMO of 11FS. I'm on a mission to learn how the world's hottest FinTech startups and most innovative financial service brands drive growth through modern day marketing. Today's guest is Valentina Christensen, Director of Growth and Communications at Oak North, and we're gonna be chatting to her about the wide and wonderful world of Oak North and everything that's going on on the marketing side over there. How are you, Val? I'm very good. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. And you are a veteran at this point of the 11FS Media Show. Yes. Yeah. We were just talking about it earlier. I think you've been on 17 episodes of FinTech. Yeah, I know. I was like hearing on the way up. I can't believe it's been that many. But first for FinTech Marketing Podcast. Yes. First of hopefully many. Yeah. Uh, So it's great to have you here. Thank you so much for making the time. I know it's busy, busy times over in the world of Oak North. So kicking things off, a little bit of a left field question. Not talking about Oak North, what is your favorite brand in financial services and why? And it can't be your own. Yes. So when I was like sort of thinking about this when you when you sent over the brief for today, and I think, I don't know, I mean, I'd probably say Square is one that, it, favorite is, I would say it's probably more one that I respect because as a sort of fellow B2B brand, at least initially, I mean, they've done a really good job of uh, marketing themselves and making their brand very cool. They've taken what is a pretty simple, tangible product, you know, the contactless terminals, and they've sort of used it as a way to enable SMEs, particularly startups, micro-businesses, to get more control over their finances within their companies. And that's something that we know so many businesses really have an issue and, and a challenge with as they as they scale. It's less so what we see once businesses reach that stage, but it's businesses like Square that are really helping those businesses to move from startup to scale up. And I think the whole way that they yeah, they market their brand and communicate it is, is really, really strong. Yeah, it's a great one. And they were, which I think is a little bit of a you know, an anomaly in financial services, they were one of the early ones to actually, a lot of their marketing came through the actual physical piece of the square that you exactly, put into the phone the, and it looked really cool. And the then tangible PayPal product. did the triangle and all that stuff, but the tangible product, like you said. So it's not just the advertising, it's the full experience. Exactly. And they haven't been, you know, as well for a, a publicly listed company that you don't really find them being too distracted by that. I mean, I think one of the challenges when you go public, if you go public, is the sort of, especially in the US, obviously quarterly reporting creates quite a bit of short-termism and that can be hard in a communications function or even indeed a marketing function because the messages you can put out there um, could potentially change every quarter and it's it becomes much more difficult to manage but also you sort of at the mercy of the the public investors and that can then sometimes distract you and make you think oh we've done a mistake here we need to go out and, and say something else and I think they've been quite consistent in their messaging. Yep great. Um, so let's talk about you a little bit. So tell us about yourself and our audience. What's your background? How did you end up as the head of growth and communications at Oak North? Yeah, sure. So I actually started my career out of university in agency side at an agency called Lanson's. So they're sort of a big city city agency. Pretty much all the blue chip brands have worked with them. And I went to university in 2008. So start of the financial crisis or really in the, the core of the financial crisis and spent the next three years you know, basically being told I wouldn't get a job out of university. But I always knew I wanted to work in um, communications. I just didn't know 
which part of it. And it was really sort of seeing how the crisis unfolded that I decided I wanted to go into financial services, especially because I could see there were certain things, certain regulations changing, for example, in 2010. So the loosening of capital requirements, which would enable new banks, which was obviously Metro Bank, the first new bank in 150 years to come to market. Um, and then coincidentally, they were actually my first client at Lansons. So that was a really fun brand to work on. Um, very sad to see how things have gone, obviously, over the last decade since since they launched. But uh, yeah, I'm sure you know, they've got a they've got a strong business and, and good fans. So I'm sure they'll they'll come out of it. But um fintech wasn't really a, a word then. I think there were brands like I mean brands that even Lanson's launched, so Nutmeg, uh, Innovate Finance, uh, who I think are neighbors um, and share, share the building with Starling across the road. So there were lots of new brands coming to market and that was kind of my first exposure to fintech. And then I was seconded to Oak North. So a secondment, for anyone who doesn't know, is just basically uh, the company pays for you to come and spend time and basically be a, an employee with them for an extended period of time. And after a few months, it was very clear that it was a good fit. And I was just finding myself at the days that I was going into the Oak North office were the ones that I was, you know, I was happiest. So then I messaged Rishi and Joel and asked them if I could meet with them to discuss something important. The co-founders, right? Yes. Yeah. So they came back saying, yes, of course. And then we met a couple of days later and sort of sat down. Down and I had prepared like, you know, my whole elevator pitch. And then Joel was like, oh no, you're leaving the PR agency, so you're not going to be seconded here anymore. And I was like, well, maybe, because I think you should hire me. And then uh, and then that sort of kicked off the conversation. And uh, the next day, in classic Oak North style, things move incredibly quickly. I had a contract and the rest is history, as they say. And that was, uh, yeah, four years ago. So were they, uh, how big was the company at that point? About 40 people. Okay. And and they didn't have anybody else doing marketing internally no. at that stage? No. And were they thinking about it then? Yes. I mean, and as I think most businesses, once they get yeah. to that point, I think, and I will, you know, we can kind of come to this later, but I've spoken to so many businesses and they sort of say, at what point should we bring in an, an internal person to run comms or run marketing? And I always think having an agency who help you out in the beginning to sort of lay the foundation, get you out in front of the press, get you meeting a few people, helping you to write a brand narrative, get your messaging house together, your Q&A documents, all the sort of basics you need. And then you can bring in someone who can help to take that to the next level and actually implement based on that sort of strategy that you've, yeah. you've laid the groundwork. Yeah, I think that there's, for a lot of marketers at, at many different sizes and types of businesses, there's always that conversation of what do you outsource versus what do you in, what do you do in-house, exactly. right? On the creative side, on the media side, on the production side. And for me, and we'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that and a little bit of a build, you know, I, I think it's, it's always better to do it in-house if you can. Yeah. If you can financially, if you can from a talent perspective, if you can, like if you're that type of organization that can get the right people and set them up for success, it's always better to have it in-house because it's going to move faster, it's going to be closer to what you want it to be, and the cost in theory should be lower. But that's not always the case. So I think my kind of, the way that I think about it and the way that we the way that we do it here at 11FS is the default is to try to build everything in-house, mm. but then for expertise that we don't have or services that we can't access. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, when we do um, some media buys that might be like offline media buys, yeah. we'll go to an outsource, you know, an external media agency for that. But as much as possible, we try to do it in-house. Is that... Is that how you're thinking about yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, and especially that's sort of the Oak North way. We do try yeah. to do as much as we can in-house, but I think it's especially with something like your brand, your narrative, and, and how you're communicating your proposition to the rest of the world, having someone come in 
straight away, um, you know, and, and not sort of get an outside or an agency perspective can be a challenge. I think um, the benefit of going to a communications agency who have, you know, great relationships with lots of journalists and who've launched lots of brands in a similar sector to you, A, they have all the contacts so they can kind of get you in front of the right people a lot more quickly probably than, than just, you know, one person who's coming in and, and learning everything from the outset. But also, you know, they can take what they know about the narratives or the perceptions of other brands in, in, the, in the sector and then use that to help you create yours and create an, an individual identity. And it's obviously much easier to do that with with a group of people who have done this multiple times before and who are doing it for other brands at the same time versus one person who, especially if you're a startup, you probably wouldn't be able to afford someone, you know, who's got decades of experience, right? So you'll be getting someone who's still quite junior and probably doesn't have the experience or the contacts that you'd really need at that uh, at that early stage. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. So I want to pick up on something I listened to another uh, podcast interview that you did recently oh, just right. about your background because I think it's really interesting and, mm. and I thought um, I really liked what you said, but you talked a little bit about your family background and yeah. how you're the daughter of an entrepreneur. Yes. Uh, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about that because I know it's something that you think about and I think is very relevant to the work that you do and where you do it. Yeah, I mean, so um, so Oak North is sort of, I guess, the Oak North Bank. The tagline is lending for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. Rishi and Joel are, um, are entrepreneurs and that's obviously who we lend to. So I think it's quite fitting that I end up working there because, as you said, I'm the daughter of an entrepreneur. You know, my, my mum, uh, she started her business. She had, you know, four kids, single mum, and she's, you know, an amazing role model for me. But I think I always have such huge respect for anybody who's brave enough to do it because I've been able to see firsthand, you know, how difficult it is to start a business, but also the sacrifice you have to make, right? I think there's, especially nowadays, I think this sort of whole work-life balance discussion, I always find it a bit tricky because because I kind of like to think of my work as a really great part of my life. I enjoy coming to it. It doesn't feel separate or like the two have to be mutually exclusive. And I think what it taught me as having my mum being an entrepreneur was that, you know, I really have to find something that I absolutely love. And um, yeah, I found that. You found it. That's great. So let's talk a little bit more about Oak North and the marketing function within it. So talk to me a little bit about the structure. You report directly to Rishi, the CEO, right? Yeah, exactly. So Rishi and Joel, um, the co-founders, and I guess maybe because I've been there, you know, for for four years, so it's kind of not really changed. I sort of really appreciate that as companies get bigger and bigger, you know, you have to bring in structures that work. It can't be that everybody who was reporting into the founders in the beginning will still be reporting into the founders, you know, 10 years down the line. So you have to find a structure that works for you, but it's it's really great to, to kind of still be reporting into them. It shows that they clearly find the function very important. And then I have a great team, a very small team, so myself and, and two others sort of on the, the primary or the core team. So uh, Tom, who joined me a year ago, and he joined from Lanson's, which was the agency I was at, or I started my career and, and spent four years. And then Stephanie Kendall, who's just recently joined us about seven weeks ago from Free Trade. Amazing. So I guess give us the lay of the land, the state of the union, if you will, of where the marketing strategy is at for Oak North, as much as you can talk about that. Yeah, so what's sure. the kind of high-level philosophy? What are you focused on for this year? What are the most important things if we were to kind of open up the playbook of marketing at Oak North yeah. in your mind? Well, I think so, you know, and it's no surprise. I mean, we talk a bit about, you know, being a very lean and profitable organization, always very focused on, on costs. So we don't have, um, you know, huge marketing budget. And that's kind of something that's been in the DNA from the beginning. So the focus has always been on, earned and owned activities rather than paid for. So owned being 
things you create and control, like this podcast that you're doing now and all the other 11FS podcasts that you produce, but also um, and being, you know, what your your other stakeholders. So whether it's employees or clients, investors, the media, what they're sharing or creating. And we always find that the uh, the power of a journalist or another unbiased third party talking about your product or service and saying it's good or you should you should check it out is always going to be so much more impactful than you saying it yourself, i.e. in a in an advertisement versus um, you know a journalist written article. So a lot of we, what we do is really focused on trying to uh, build up our network and our relationships with with those external stakeholders, um, and that's probably really because of myself and the rest of the team's background in comms rather than in sort of digital marketing or, or social media. I think you have to kind of think about the the activities that will be most impactful for you. So we've tried lots of different things over the years, and then we test and measure and see what has the biggest impact depending on what the desired outcome is. So in our case, it's there'll be certain activities that are purely for sort of brand building and um, uh, corporate profile. And there you might say, okay, the, the sort of target audience is prospective and existing employees, investors, et cetera. And then you might have the other sort of part of it is is lead generation, right? So for the bank side, it's obviously targeting entrepreneurs and leaders of businesses who we might want to lend to, as well as obviously people who might want to save with us. And then obviously on the platform side, it's other banks around the world who might want to license our platform to do lending more effectively in their own markets. Yep. So I pulled this quote um, that I thought was interesting because, you know, I knew we were going to talk about kind of the approach and leaning more into the earn side of things. Um, So Rishi from an interview, February 2018, we're getting to real scale within the business without having to actually go and throw all the money out on advertising. We're dealing with the real problem that people have. Uh, And when you're targeting a real pain point, the ecosystem helps drive people to you. So it's it's kind of what you're saying. It's um, getting the right people to talk about it, but also I guess that – product market fit of like if you're delivering real value that's not there in the market, you know, sometimes having a good product is actually the best marketing. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's um, it's that old adage, you know, half the money I spend on advertising is wasting. The trouble is I don't know which half. And as someone with a comms background, you know, I just, that, that pains me. It's just not in my DNA. And I don't think, I need to be able to see the return on investment from everything we do. And I think exactly as Rishi made, in, made the point in that interview, you know, when we're trying in this case to sort of convince people to take a loan from us, that's more expensive than if they went to a traditional incumbent bank of several million pounds, if not tens of millions of pounds, you probably won't be able to convince them in an advertisement and it probably wouldn't be the right fit and probably a bit too broad brush actually because you'd end up, you know, if you just say we do SME lending, well, 99.9% of businesses are SMEs and we don't lend to 99.9% of all the businesses out there. It's a very specific niche. So actually focusing on activities that are much more targeted, whether that's smaller events, whether it's things that will enable you to reach out to intermediaries directly. So we we have a few different things that we do and, and work very closely with the sales functions of both the platform and the bank to see which things are generating the biggest impact in terms of lead generation. So even for an example, you know, every month we send out a I guess it's like a monthly newsletter, but it's just a summary of some of the deals we've done, some of the things that are happening at the bank. Send that out to prospective clients, existing clients, and intermediaries who might advise those businesses. 
And, you know, that accounts for 1% of deals. So that's, in terms of return on investment, it's sort of a, a an email that takes about half an hour for the team to put together. So, um, yeah, pretty strong ROI there. Amazing. And so are you doing any paid advertising or is it all earned and some owned, it sounds like, as well? Yeah. So we've done, I mean, we've, we've as I said, we've experimented with it. I yeah. think you should sort of immediately say it's not for us because you never know. And we did find that we had a large quantity of deals come through, but not necessarily the right quality. So um, we did test it out in a couple of publications from speaking to clients and saying, you know, what do you read? Then we would test it out and see, you know, let's let's put a few ads in there and see if we get some good lead generation. Um, but we just found that it was very, very expensive and it didn't really sort of justify itself. Actually, we could use the same amount of money to do you know, three events, we could invite 10 prospects to each, you know, private dinners or learning breakfasts or whatever it might be. And, and that could be much more impactful. So we've just found that uh, those sorts of activities aren't as good for us, but we do, do still spend money on certain things. So obviously, the events that we'll manage and create on our own, but also sponsoring certain events, and there'll be smaller sort of sector verticals where we might want to have a presence, um, more so than just sort of a speaking slot or, or simply attending, we might actually say, well, let's have an exhibition stand or let's have some branding, let's have an ad in the brochure, whatever it might be. So we do spend a bit, but it's very, very little. And do you see that staying the same way as you scale? Because obviously you're going through a period of rapid expansion, opening and scaling in the U.S., uh, moving into new product verticals with mortgages and saving products. So because I think a lot of brands, particularly in fintech, you know, I think Monzo and Starling, mm. used, at least Monzo used to talk back in the day of like, we don't do advertising. And now, of course, they do TV and they do tube and they do a lot of what yeah. a lot of people would consider more traditional, but certainly paid. And I think a lot of brands need to get there in order to get the scale that they want. Mm. So I'm curious, as you look at the roadmap for 2020 and beyond, because I know there's ambitions, uh, even at the valuation and the size that you are, to be much bigger and be much more global. Do you see paid playing a bigger part of the mix, or do you think you can get that scale with the approach you have right now? So I would say never say never, right? You also have to remember we have obviously the two the two parts of the business. So Oak North Bank in the UK, where, as you say, we offer a suite of products and we directly target businesses who want to borrow. Um, and then there's the platform business, which is everything outside of the UK where we're really targeting banks um, as a, a software as a service solution. So um, then your audiences are very, very different. Everything down to the types of publications they're reading are going to be totally different. And the tactics and activities you might use to reach them are going to also vary quite significantly. So what's worked on entrepreneurs in the UK certainly might not be appropriate for, you know, bank CEOs and, and CROs in, in other markets. And I think, you know, we, again, we'll, we'll give it a, we'll try it and we'll experiment. But the most important thing is always testing and then seeing the ROI. And that's why, you know, the the comms team, the marketing team should always be really in the pocket of the sales team, you know, working extremely closely together. Because if you're not getting that feedback in terms of what impact it's having, then, you um, it's very difficult for you to see what's working, what's not, how should messaging be changed, what can be improved. And as I said, I wouldn't want us to ever be spending loads of money and not knowing the impact and that that's having to the bottom line. 
Yeah, I think that's so important, the collaboration and coordination between sales and marketing. I think you're seeing more and more it even sitting within the same department or rolling yep. up to the same person, um, which I think is interesting and, and holds a lot of potential in that model because they are, you know, it's it's left hand, right hand. It's all about driving growth yeah. of the business. And I think particularly in B2B businesses, traditionally, you had sales very much taking lead in marketing as a support function. But yeah. I think more businesses are getting it right where it's really – uh, both those functions are important. It's important to keep them kind of on yeah. the same level, but it's just about how they work together. So uh, let's get tactical on that. How does that work? Like, how do you make sure that you stay synced up with the sales team within Oak North? So, I mean, I think it's things like, so the, the anecdote I shared earlier about the, you know, 1% of deals, that's that's uh, feedback directly from um, Ben Barbanel, our, our head of debt finance. So essentially the the person who heads up our team of originators on the on the bank side. So I think that's one thing. I mean, when I first joined Oak North, you know, the, obviously the origination team was very small, but people who came from traditional high street banks where, you know, they never met the comms team, right? I mean, you, you or the, the marketing team, I mean, you would just, you only ever heard from them if you'd done something and then they said, why were you, why were you talking to a journalist about that? It was really only if you were in trouble. So even now when we have new um, originators who join, you know, we have as part of the induction process, you know, a conversation where we say, like, this is how we're going to work with you. This is how we're going to help you to promote the deals that you're doing so that we can hopefully help you to generate more leads. This is how you can promote them to your network. This is, you know, give us your list of contacts so we can make sure they're getting the monthly email. So things like that, you know, making sure that from the get go, they're very clear on who we are, what we do, how we're going to help them, and then making sure we get that feedback. So we don't just, you know, send out uh, send out the the monthly email and then you know, hope for the best is, you know, obviously tracking, seeing how many people opened it, what were the click-through rates, and then making sure that the team get that feedback as well, get those figures so that they can see, you know, what are their numbers and am I sending it to the right people so they know, okay, well, I should, you know, think more carefully about who I asked, you know, for this kind of um, content to go to. So even things like that. And I think what's worked well for us as a B2B business is, as I said, things that are very, very targeted. So activities where we can sit down with, 10 entrepreneurs who we know we would want to lend to versus trying to do something really broad brush where we might get the brand out there, sure, and, and lots of people hear about us, but not necessarily people who we could really help. And then the, the challenge there is actually you create a problem for the sales team because you have then generated so many leads that are really they have to spend their time filtering through a lot of people who we simply can't help. And that's not a great use of their time. I'd much rather generate a smaller number of leads, but much higher quality. Um, so that's where things, you know, like traditional PR are very impactful, right? I mean, getting a, a great piece in the Times, you know, about a loan we've done. And um, an example, you know, James Hurley's Working Life. I know he's been on the podcast, uh, Fintech Insiders, a few times and has done a, a profile on 11FS. Um, but his his double-page spread could get us a dozen high-quality leads that's so much more impactful than putting an ad in the Times where we might get three dozen leads, but they're not the right fit. It's interesting because I, I was kind of thinking as you were talking about that, okay, the events, I get that. The emails, I get that because people have opted in. That's a little bit more targeted. Mm. But then the PR, particularly the more mainstream PR, would be more of that broad brush. And I think you ultimately yeah. need to do both, right? Because you need to, as you said earlier, you need to grow the brand awareness, but then you also need to generate the leads. But you kind of see that PR is actually being a little bit more targeted. Uh, maybe if it's the right message out there, it resonates with the right 100%. people. 100%. Yeah. It's because, you know, I mean, it's the same as if you're doing a PowerPoint presentation. You know, the fewer words on the slide, the better. And it's the same with an ad. You can't bombard people with loads of information. So if you look at any of the ads from any of the challenger banks on the tube, you know, they're 
pretty simplistic. You know, it's like 15 words probably. Um, they don't go into too much detail. They hope that's enough to convince you to at least go to the website or download the app or whatever it might be. The difference with obviously a, a double page spread is that they'll be interviewing an entrepreneur. They'll be hearing about their experience. They'll be talking about what they're going to use the loan for. And so that enables you to build a much stronger picture about the business and about whether you think they'd be a right fit for you and whether borrowing from Oak North would be the right approach for you or whether licensing our platform would be impactful for your bank. That's going to be you know, much stronger than trying to put an ad and explain the complexity of what we do you know, in, in 20 words. Interesting. So it gives you kind of that... Um broader, I guess, uh, palette to actually paint the full picture of the business. If you can do those interviews, actually hear from the people that are benefiting from it, um, like like Rishi was saying in that quote, solving real problems for real people. And the fact is that it's someone else telling you that you're solving those problems, right? That's always, it's, that goes back to the third party endorsement, PR versus advertising. And it's, if you can get a journalist to really believe, and, and you know, hopefully it's because you're genuinely doing that, but if a journalist believes that you are doing something different, or at least finds it interesting and writes about it, then that's going to be way more impactful than you going out to market saying how great you are. Yep, for sure. And how are you thinking about that in the U.S.? Because I know that's, that's something that you're very focused on yeah. right now. Same type of strategy, same type of approach. Uh, you have to build a lot of those media relationships. Yeah, I mean, a bit trickier obviously now. because bigger market, of course. Exactly, yeah. totally different scale of market, and also the way. I mean, if you look in the UK, I mean, there's, you know, unfortunately, regional press is sort of a a dying trade. Um, you still have a lot of region regional publications that are incredibly important, but there's you know a fraction of what they used to be, um, um, and that is different to somewhere in somewhere like the US, where um, because you know you have states that are. 10 times the size of London, um, you know, the regional press still plays a hugely important role. Um, but I think it's actually then finding, again, those those sector verticals and those trade publications speaking to your customers, right? Ask the CEOs, when you've onboarded the bank, what do you read? You know, what is it that, I mean, there'll be max two or three publications that they'll read a day. So, you know, do that, see also where are they quoted, where are they profiled, what events are they speaking at. All of that is going to help us to determine which places we should be focusing our biggest energy on. Yeah. And so are you are you going to be scaling your team in the U.S.? Are you running that from here with the team you have and partners over there? For the time being yeah. from here, I mean, the, you know, the, the view definitely would be to, to scale the team globally. But I think I'm always very mindful of, you know, not getting sort of too big. I think that that becomes very challenging to ensure sort of quality control. And, you know, with I think it's it's always a difficulty when you're scaling so quickly because you don't want to stretch the team too thin. But I think, again, that's where it goes back to if you constantly test and measure, you'll make sure that the team are focusing efforts and energy on the, the really high impact um, activities, not spreading yourself too thin. I mean, we could hire a social media manager to help build up our our, you know, our followers um, across all of our social channels, um, you know, help to, to to push out more content. But actually, if you look at our user base or the, the, the target audience, you know, that's not where they are. <laughs> They're not really on Twitter for the most part. LinkedIn they are, but, uh, you know, we do all right on LinkedIn. But I mean, so it's that not wasting energy and effort on things that aren't actually going to yield strong results when you're such a small team. If you if we had the benefit of huge budget, I'd be like, let's just hire, you know, everybody to do everything and we can, you know, we could have a, a huge brand on social. But I think, yeah, we've had to be really focused on the things that we know deliver high value for the team.
team. It's something that, as an outsider, my personal opinion, I, I really respect about the brand is you all seem to be very, very focused on just the job at hand, which is delivering value to your customers, right? Yeah. I think it's easy, particularly when you're talking about you know raising so much money and these huge valuations and kind of it's easy to get sucked up into this vortex that can pull you in so many different directions and you focus on scale at all costs. But what I get looking at the brand from the outside, but then also, because obviously we've talked before and you've been on yeah. the podcast, but talking about broader industry news, and this is specifically getting really deep on the marketing playbook for Oak North, it seems like I'm sure that that comes from the top with leadership, but you also seem to do a great job of making sure that that plays out through the marketing and through how the brand connects with customers as well. Yeah, I mean, one of our, I mean, not to be, you know, totally cliche and sort of start going on about the values, but one of our values that I think really you know, exactly to that point, right ambition. And it's the fact that, you know, put my own ego aside, I don't need everybody in the world to have heard about Oak North. And if if I meet lots of people who should have heard about us and they haven't, then I know, great, my job's not done. Because if everybody I wanted to know about us knew, then, you know, there's not really much much left to do. Um, so kind of put your own ego aside. It's not about building the biggest brand necessarily. It's about delivering real value and showing, you know, it's, it's one of those, you know, things I think you kind of learn growing up in, in marketing or comms, which is it's so intangible, it's so difficult to measure, especially in, in, in PR and comms. And I think actually it's just about finding the ways that you can measure it. Um, and again, through even if it's just anecdotally, through speaking to the sales team or through speaking to, to leadership, you know, seeing the impact that the things you're doing have. And that's, you know, if you think about, again, going back to one of the points I made about as a business scales, it's very feasible that further down the line, Oak North would need to bring in someone who's got different kind of experience to me, experience that I simply don't have, like, you know, crisis comms, let's say. I hope we never have a massive <laughs> crisis where we need to do that. But let's say, well, put my own ego aside because, like, let someone come in or go to an agency and have them help us rather than trying to say, well, actually, this is my territory. This is what I'm I'm leading. So, you know, you have to let me continue doing that because that puts the entire company at jeopardy and actually puts my own investment at jeopardy. So um, I think, you know, with those sorts of things, you know, it's about having that conversation and, and hiring people who are in it for the right reasons and understand the vision of the company as a whole and can put their ego aside. I love that, the right ambition piece. Um, just because I think particularly in our industry and anything when it comes to startups and scale-ups, there can so much be the ambition kind of at all costs and it's just about winning and about being the biggest and all that thing, all of that. But it needs to be for the right reasons. Um, and I think it's, I think, even when some people say that, there's a difference between saying it and actually having it come through with the people from the company when you talk to them mm. and also in the activity of what they do and don't do in the stories that they tell in the market. But it's just, I mean, you know, but it's, it's also crazy to believe that someone like me who's got a decade of experience would possibly be as good or, or as impactful in every single part of communications and marketing as someone who's had 30 years experience, right? I think the benefit is hopefully then if someone does come in at the later stage who's, you know, even more experienced than you, well, great, then I'll have an opportunity to learn from someone really, really good. And then when I'm 30 years experienced, I can go in and do that somewhere else and hopefully teach the person who's 10 years experienced, right? I think that's, um, it's sort of, again, and that's not just in, in marketing and comms. I mean, that's in every part of the business. I think you need to find, you know, people who are right in the, the startup phase. Doesn't mean they're going to be right when you're, let's say, a public company, right? You know, because the types of comms and marketing and operations, every function really changes after you go public. So, so even with something like that, you know, thinking, is this still the right team? And the team also understanding that and knowing, okay, fine, maybe you need to bring in some additional expertise. Can do a lot if you put your ego aside. If yes. you don't care who gets the credit, right? Yeah. 
So let's give you some more credit, though. What are you working <laughs> on this year that you're excited about? What what potential kind of announcements or things are we going to be hearing from Oak North in 2020? Well, I mean, okay, so nothing. I can't give anything specific, obviously. But no, I mean, look, we 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 have um, absolutely zero intention of of slowing down. So in the UK, on the Oak North Bank side of things, I mean, we. You know, we're continuing to, to leverage the platform to do lending to businesses. Really exciting. Last year, we sort of set up regional hubs across different parts of the UK. So we've always had a team in Manchester, but actually having a, a debt finance team on the ground there. In addition to that, um, Bristol, Birmingham, Leeds. So that's really exciting because it will give us a chance to meet businesses much more regularly on the ground there. Um, one of the things that we've always been very proud of is the fact that it's still very personal and every business comes in and meets credit committee. So it will enable us to continue to have that very personal human approach, despite the fact that we're scaling um, very quickly. Um, and then outside of the UK, I mean, definitely this is the year where we'll be able to announce a lot more of those, those platform partnerships. The sales cycle is obviously much longer when you're talking about banks, especially the banks that we're talking to, which are very, very big, where, you know, it's it's sort of 18 months to two years. Um, so very exciting that we're, you know, coming up to the point where we'll now be able to start talking about some of the banks that we're working with um, and how we're helping them to to address the the SME funding gap in their own markets. So that's really, um, yeah, the focus for, for the next 12 months. But as I said, we'll tactically be seeing what works, testing out different things, working very closely with the sales teams to make sure that whatever we are doing is having the desired outcome. A lot going on. That's great. So for our audience, would be great to hear just from your 10 years of experience and, and everything that you've kind of picked up. What are some of your sources of inspiration for marketers at any stage of their career? What are some places that you would recommend, books, websites, people to listen to? Sure. So a couple of things. I mean, I think, you know, my team is obviously a great source of inspiration. And I don't just mean sort of the marketing comms team, but the wider team, because again, if you talk very closely and you work very closely with the sales team, they'll have ideas of how to reach the customers, right? I mean, whether they can see something that's worked from working somewhere previously, or they can see from what a competitor's doing, or they might just think, you know what, this is something that I think could work, maybe from a conversation they've had with a client. So, you know, again, they can be a great source of inspiration and they can come up with some really great ideas. And again, it goes back to put your own ego aside just because it wasn't your idea doesn't mean it's not a good one. I think that's such a great point. Sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to say because even how I wrote the question and how I was thinking about it is like, oh, it's got to be something external. Mm. But it's such a great point that if you do kind of put the ego aside and, you know, it's not about like you being their boss or manager like you can learn anything from anybody if sure. you're paying attention and you give them the chance. So the inspiration can come from inside the organization and the team 100%. that's around you already. I mean, if you think about, let's say, a product, right, or even, I mean, go to Oak North products like a savings product. If I have a savings account with Oak North and I have some feedback for the product team, can I not go and share that with them because they're going to feel worried that I'm trying to, like, infringe on their territory? Of course not. I mean, I think it's, you know, what's the point in hiring smart people across the whole organization if you can't then leverage their their knowledge and their skills and their expertise for as many things as possible. So yeah, the team definitely are, are one of the, the great sources of inspiration. I mean, other B2B brands, AWS, Salesforce, Agin, especially looking at how they've they've grown as a brand from startup through to, to scale up. And then in some cases like Agin, a public company, in cases like Salesforce merging with other big companies, AWS managing so many different brands, you know, Alexa, Amazon Store, Kindle, Prime, you know, how do you manage that and still keep a strong brand identity um, when you've got so many sort of other micro brands within that? And especially when you've got, you know, a founder-led organization with such a big uh, name like Jeff Bezos. So, you know, how do you make sure that you can still find other great people in the company who can represent the organization? Because, 
you know, that has to be, there has to be a contingency plan and there has to be something there if, you know, if and when he does step down in the same way you've seen with Google, that the business can then continue to thrive. Same way with Microsoft, right? Same way with Apple. I mean, the founders do um, inevitably have to to move on at some point. Um, so making sure that you've got, you know, a, a great group of people who are spokespeople. And then some other great resources. I mean, um, so I, I'm a member of the um, CIPR, the Chartered Institute of Public Relations. Do a few different things there. So I'm on the editorial board for Influence, which is the magazine that goes out quarterly to all members. Great because I get to work, you know, really closely with people agency side, people who have editorial experience, people who are in-house like me. And chances are, They'll have gone through lots of similar challenges. They will have, you know, if I have questions about how do I find good people, it's also a great way to meet good people because obviously you you go to sort of meetups or networking events and then stay in touch with people and hopefully then you can um, convince them to join your team uh, at a later stage. And then I guess, you know, others are our mentors. So people who I've worked with over the years, you know, board, uh, board director from Lansons who I still sort of meet up with regularly and again, it's that going back to having someone who's got 30 years experience, I can ask her so many questions and get her insights and her advice. Even when I was, you know, thinking about, oh, my God, should I even email Rishi and Joel and ask them to, to hire me? You know, is that is that a, a smart thing to do or is it, you know, is it really risky? And, and even, you know, sort of my mentor saying, well, yeah, it's risky, but who cares? I mean, just go for it, right? If they say no, then all they know is that you love the company, which probably won't be that such a bad thing. But if they said yes, then you'll have the chance to do something, you know, really great and hopefully have an opportunity to, to build something from scratch. And yeah, so I think, you know, that's those are sort of different people and, and um, different sort of groups where I can, I can get an inspiration. Um, but I think also, you know, just... Going speaking to people who are completely outside of my function. Um, my mum, as I said, has been an amazing role model and mentor. And this goes outside of source of inspiration for marketing and communications activities, but more just for life. As I said before, I mean, work-life balance is always tricky for me because I don't feel like the two should be mutually exclusive. And I don't want to feel guilty if when I'm on holiday, I want to check my email <laughs> because I like knowing what's going on. And I'm excited about work. So actually spending two weeks over Christmas not looking at my email and not speaking to anyone from the office would really depress me, you know. So and I want to feel guilty about that. I'm very, very lucky to have found something that I absolutely love, um, which a lot of people might not do until, you know, much later in life or at all. So I think if you are fortunate to find something you love, then don't feel guilty about it if you do, you know, want to stay switched on. And I sort of saw that, you know, my mum would do, you know, we'd go on holiday and she'd still be doing conference calls and, you know, meetings, you know, whilst we were on the beach or whatever it might be. But it didn't mean that then she wasn't also spending time with us. I think it's just finding a balance that works for you rather than, you know, what, what other people might tell you is the right balance. I think that, I think that's exactly it. For me, my quick two cents on that conversation is I think it's about self-awareness. I think it's about knowing you and what mm. makes you happy and figuring that out, which is very, very hard, yeah. especially when there's so many perspectives and voices telling you different things. Uh, but once you figure it out, then doing that, and we shouldn't be judging people for exactly. how they decide to spend their time and what their balance is. So one other thing before we wrap up, because um, it's something that you're doing that I really respect and admire and wanted to give you a chance to talk about a little bit. So you're a big advocate for diversity yeah. in financial services and closing the gender pay gap. And so I just love to kind of hear maybe you know 30 seconds from you on where where we're at with that how you kind of see the state of the market the industry right now and and what you think we should all be doing to try to change it yeah sure i mean i think one of the things we 
uh, sort of just, I guess, on, on Oak North side of things. I mean, one of the things that we, we're trying, I guess, like so many companies is obviously to ensure we have a diverse talent pool. But it's challenging because if you look at something like engineering, you know, there's a limited pool in comparison to, you know, male engineers. So, you know, that that becomes very difficult to sort of create a 50-50 split. And so then it's saying, well, actually, what can we do to increase that the the size the size of the pool of talent that we can go after, and you know it's it's a challenge because so many young women and girls are taught from a young age you know to to move more into the sort of humanities or or languages and move away from the sciences. So it's it's trying to bust some of those myths. You know, not if you're an engineer, it doesn't mean you have to like wear a hoodie and be Mark Zuckerberg. And you know, you can actually still be someone who's very sociable and who who likes being in an office with lots of people and still be a great engineer. And if you want to be a scientist, it doesn't mean that you have to be down in a basement in a lab coat. So busting some of those myths, and that's literally going into schools and talking to young women and girls about, you know, again, if you're in a, a woman in STEM, I mean, technically, I'm in a, a tech company, but I'm not in a STEM subject or a STEM role. So actually showing them, look, you can work for a STEM company and be technically a woman in STEM, even if you don't want to pursue a career in science or or technology or engineering or, or mathematics. So so that's, that's one of the ways. Um, and that goes all the way up into university level. So this month alone, we've got um, you know, student entrepreneurs coming f- and student engineers coming from um, Imperial, from um, Warwick, from I'm doing a talk next week at CAS. So just different things at every stage, really, of people's uh, education, trying to bust some of those myths and get them uh, open up their mind to an idea of pursuing a career in enterprise or entrepreneurship or a career in, in STEM. And then, um, you know, me, me personally, I mean, I'm a big believer in mentors. I've been a huge beneficiary of it. So, you know, I, I don't really say you should go out and ask someone to be your mentor, but for, I'm very fortunate to be able to mentor three people. Um, so less, less than a handful. I probably wouldn't have time to do more than that and, and do it justice. But I think that's, uh, that's also really, really important to kind of create that cycle and hopefully they'll go on to mentor some people um, in the future. And I don't believe it has to be, you know, someone who's, exactly like you. Your mentors don't all have to be women if you're a woman. They don't all have to be men if you're a man. It's actually really good to get mentors from loads of different backgrounds, from loads of different walks of life. And uh, and then hopefully that will mean you're even better prepared to take on the challenges of the future. Yeah, amazing. Um, so last question is, who else do you think we should get on the show maybe for <laughs> season two? Okay, well, I know you'll have people like Chad and Tristan, um, so Revolut and, and Monzo. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a shout-out for the B2B people. Okay. Um, you know, I definitely think you should get some B2B people on, um, some agency-side people, some names, people like uh, Ina Yolo from AWS Startups. So she was formerly at Bright Talk, and she built up their fintech yeah, community. Her, yeah, yeah. 400,000 people. So she did an amazing job there and obviously knows a thing or two about getting a big following. Um, Victoria, who's the CMO at Iwaka. Obviously, they've done loads of really interesting things, really interesting company, profitable company as well, profitable fintech. And they're also really being able to distinguish themselves in an industry that's having a very difficult time right now. So how they're you know, creating a really strong brand at a time when many of their peers are really struggling. Stacey Torman, um, head of PR for Salesforce, Amir. So again, really interesting company, massive, massive company with some great brands, you know, great events like Dreamforce. So some of the ways they've sort of scaled that um, and got it to be, especially as well, a, a founder whose tactics um, in terms of, of scaling and, and um, generating the, the strongest results, you know, the sort of V2Mom framework, all that, which we actually use at Oak North, um, you know, really, really interesting. Um, and then, you know, if you can get some 
some gurus like Simon Sinek and, uh, you know, Tim Ferriss, that'd be pretty cool too. We'll get right on that. All right. So that wraps up today's FinTech Marketing Podcast. Thank you so much, Val, for joining me. Where can people find out more about you in Oak North? Um, so me personally, you know, um, LinkedIn or at Val Christensen on Twitter, um, Oak North, www.oaknorth.com. And thank you everyone so much for listening. If you want to find out more about 11FS, head on over to 11FS.com. You can also find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. And don't forget to subscribe to Fintech Marketing Podcast as this is the first season. Would really love the support. If you found some value from this episode, please do subscribe, share, and please, please, please leave us a review that really helps us get the content out there. And also let us know what you thought of today's episode. You can either hit us up on Twitter or LinkedIn, or you can always reach us on podcasts at 11fs.com. We'll have many more episodes to fill out this season. Thank you so much for listening. Have a good one.